welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. Now, if you've got your Bibles with you, we're going to be in both Luke 19 and John chapter 12, if you want to turn there. We'll be in John chapter 12 first, and then we'll flip over to Luke 19, so you may want to find that. Uh, let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought about what would happen if we no longer had a president? We would be miserable. What would we gripe and whine about if we didn't have a president to be upset about all the time? Uh, you know, we'll never find the answer to that question about whether or not we'll have a president because our government is set up in such a way there's a secession plan that if our president is to die or be incapacitated in any way, there's somebody to take his place. So if our president was to die today, we would, we would immediately have the vice president step into that presidential role. But we're so scared of not having a leader of our country, we don't just have a backup. We have a backup to the backup. We have a backup to the backup to the backup. We have a backup to the backup to the backup to the backup. And I'm not going to say backup anymore. We get a lot of backups. Uh, l listen to this. This is the secession plan for our president. So if the president dies, the vice president will become president. If they're both incapacitated, then it goes to the Speaker of the House, then the President pro tempore of the Senate. Then we get into the Secretaries of State, Treasury Defense, then the Eternal General, Attorney General. Then the secretaries of the uh, in the interior, agriculture, commerce, labor, health and human services, housing and urban development, transportation, energy, education, veterans affairs, and homeland security. 17 positions of people to step into a role of leadership should all of the people above them be taken out or be incapacitated for some reason. It's very clear that we are terrified of not having a leader. And it's not just because our government is to design is designed to need a leader is because human nature says we need somebody to lead us. We need somebody to even rule over us. We need somebody to protect us. Now, the concept of a president or governor or even a mayor is relatively new. In the past, this person was referred to as a king. And a king would have this position to rule and take care of a country or a kingdom for as long as they lived. And the reason I bring all that up is because what the Bible teaches us is that Jesus was not just a man. Jesus was not just a good person. He wasn't just a carpenter. Jesus was the king of the universe, the one who rules forever and ever and ever. He was not elected. There's no line of secession. He has absolute authority. And a king, as long as he lives, maintains his authority. And here's the thing about Jesus Christ. Not only did he live then, he lives now, and he will live forever and ever. Okay, there we go. I was wondering if you guys were awake this morning. So, so, so Jesus is our king. Now, throughout all of human history, what we want to focus on over the next couple of weeks, throughout all of human history, with the exception of about 33 years, the king has existed, the king has ruled, but the king has been away. For the past 2,000 years since Jesus Christ walked this earth, since his death, burial, resurrection, 40 days he walked the earth and then he ascended into heaven. He has been away and we have been here on earth without at least his physical presence. What do we do when the king is away? And to answer that this morning, I want to go back to before Jesus was born because for thousands of years they waited for the king just as we wait for the king now. 
If you look into scripture, people who believed in God prior to Jesus' birth, they didn't just get surprised when Jesus walked on to the stage. They were expecting him. They were waiting on the king. If you look in the scriptures, there are over 400 different prophecies that point towards the king of kings and lord of lords coming to, um, coming to earth. One of those is in Numbers 24. This is 24:17. It says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. That was written 1,400 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. People began to, to long for this king to come out of Jacob. They, belong, they began to long for the Lord of Lords to come out of Israel. This person who writes this says, I can see him, I can behold him, but he's not here. And then to describe this king that they're waiting on, they use an object. They said, a scepter will rise out of Israel. I've got a picture coming up here. If you're not aware of what a scepter is, this is, this is what they're looking forward to at this time. A king will hold this staff or rod in their hand. That's called a scepter. And what that is, is it a physical reminder of the absolute authority of the person who holds it. So when you have a king and they become a king and they have an official capacity, they will carry a scepter. They look all different ways. They will carry a scepter. And that's just a physical reminder. The person who holds this piece of metal has absolute undying authority. It's a, it's a little bit like in our culture, a judge's gavel. A judge's gavel is just a piece of wood. But the person who holds the gavel holds the power to judge. The person who holds the scepter holds the power to rule. And so what the Bible is saying here when it's talking about this person that's saying is I see someone coming with an unquestionable right to rule with absolute authority. That, that's your first take home truth this morning is when we're talking about the king is God promised the world a king with absolute authority. And this person would be the king of Israel. They would come up out of Israel. Now, 400 years later, we see Israel get their first king, a guy named Saul. We see Israel get the king that many look back to as the king of kings, a guy named David. You guys are familiar with David, the shepherd boy, the David and Goliath. 400 years later, David appears to be this king. And many might have thought, well, this is the promised king. But scriptures make it clear David is not the king. This is Samuel 7. This is God speaking to David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. See, David at this time was a great king, but David was an earthly king. He was, he was just a regular man. All men live and die. And so David's, David's reign as king would come to an end. There would be a point in his life when he would take his last breath and he would pass his authority on to someone else. We call this a dynasty. And in most cases, when a king dies, they pass their authority to their oldest, bo oldest born male son, if they have one. If not, there's some other ways of going about that. They pass it off to their offspring. And then they would pass that king off to their offspring and their offspring. And it would continue down in this dynasty. But when you talk about a dynasty, a dynasty usually lasts a hundred, a few hundred years. Maybe, maybe a large dynasty might last a thousand years. But the scripture here is clearly talking about something bigger because what it says is that, is that this kingdom, the throne of this kingdom, will be established forever. The scripture here talks about an eternal kingdom and an eternal king who will have absolute power forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Your second take home truth is this, is God promised us a king would rule in his kingdom forever. 
And for thousands of years, the Israelites, the Jews, sat and they waited on this king. And they knew the signs. They, they knew what would identify this king to them. They knew that he would be born in Bethlehem. They, would know, they knew that he would come out of the lineage of David. They knew that he would come from the tribe of Judah. They knew that he would live in Nazareth. You, you guys know what living in Nazareth means? That's like the most backwoods place in all of Israel. It's, it's like this. Up above uh, Russellville, uh, we were driving around when I was in college up there, and we went up in the mountains. And there is a town north of Russellville literally called Booger Holler. Booger Holler, Arkansas. And the sign right running into Booger Holler reads, Population, six people, one hound dog. How embarrassed would you be to tell people, where are you from? Booger Holler, Arkansas. Now, it's not a whole lot better than Batesville, Arkansas, but it's like that. Listen, Jesus Christ came from Booger Holler, Israel. He came from Nazareth. It was the nowhere from nobody, and people didn't recognize him when he came here. They, they didn't know who he was. He was a craftsman. He wasn't exactly good looking. He didn't have an army. He, he came from nowhere, but Jesus fits all of this. And they waited, and they, and they waited for him, and they waited for the king who they called the Messiah. Now, what we're going to see today is the first time that Jesus Christ identifies himself to the mass public as the king. If you've got your Bibles open, this is in John chapter 12. Read with me verses 12 through 15. <clears throat> It says, on the next day, so this is happening immediately after Jesus has brought Lazarus back from the dead. On the next day, uh, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, said their own, as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, the king comes sitting on a donkey's colt. So number three on your take-home truths is this, is that Jesus is the king who will rule forever and ever. They gave this king that they waited on a title. They simply called him Messiah. They waited on the Messiah. If you translate that word literally, it means the anointed one, the one chosen by God, the one who has been given authority by God. And they waited on Messiah, and they knew the signs of what he would look like. And in this passage, what Jesus is doing is he's riding into Jerusalem, and he's identifying to them, I am the Messiah. I am the Messiah. This is his announcement. I am the king and I've come to claim the kingdom. Now this is a departure from what Jesus has done through his ministry up to this point. If you read the scripture, you're going to hear Jesus say over and over again, he'll heal somebody and he'll say, don't tell anybody. Go, go on, but don't let anybody know what happened here. Don't tell somebody I brought your daughter back from the dead. Don't tell them I cured your blindness. It's not yet, he says these words, it's not yet my time. I don't want anybody to know who I am yet. And this is the moment when Jesus goes away from that and he makes the announcement of who I am. One of the ways that he makes the announcement is how he enters into the city. It says that Jesus entered into the city riding a young donkey. Now, if you're like me, you're like, well, that sounds convenient. He must have been tired and been tired of walking. No, no, no. Jesus, Jesus planned this particular um, excuse me, Jesus planned this particular way of entry. This is Luke 19, if I can find it. Luke 19, 28 through 32. It's telling the same story from another point of view. And it says, And when he had spoken, uh, thus spoken, he went before, ascending up to Jerusalem. 
And it came to pass, when he was come nigh unto Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go ye into the village over against you, in the which at your entering you shall find a colt tied, whereon, you never, uh, whereon a man never set. Loose him and bring him hither. And if any man ask you, why do you loose him? Thus shall ye say unto him, Because the Lord has need of him. And they that were sent went their way and found even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto him, Why loose the colt? And they said, The Lord hath need of him. And they brought him to Jesus, and they cast their garments upon the colt, and they sat Jesus thereon. So what you see with this is Jesus didn't just need something to ride because he was traveling a long way. He has a very prominent point. He tells his disciples, I'm going to wait here. There's a very specific donkey in a very specific place. You go get that donkey and bring him to me which by the way I love this point you want to know that God is God or Jesus is God he's telling them I know where there is a donkey that has never been rode you bring that to me and I'm going to sit on it and ride that donkey how how possible is that that Jesus sits on an unrode, unbroken animal and it just responds to him. It's almost impossible. But this is the reason that Jesus did this. Your next take home truth is the donkey identifies the Messiah. The donkey identifies the Messiah. One of the prophecies of the coming Messiah is Zechariah 9.9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, this was Jesus' planned announcement. He waited until the time was right when people would accept him to, to bring his announcement about his kingship out. We see this in today's world. We, we time our announcements for certain effects. I saw an excellent announcement yesterday. I don't know if you guys know Jason and Kim are going to have a baby. Woo, right? Excited. And I love their announcement video. I told them I was going to pick on them yesterday. They were sitting, I think you guys were having your pictures taken in the video. They were having their pictures taken and they had Christopher sitting in the middle of them. And he had a shirt on and it said, Big Brother Under Construction, but he can't read yet. And, and so Kim asked him, he said, uh, what, do you know what your shirt says? And she says, it says, Big Brother under construction. She said, do you know what that means? And he's kind of like, uh, no. And she goes, it means you're going to be a big brother. Most priceless reaction I've ever seen. <gasps> and he just froze. We timed that announcement to him at a point when it would have an effect as they were taking pictures. This is what we do, and this is what Jesus was doing. He timed his announcement for a very specific time. Now, you have to ask about this. Is this really the only thing that identifies Jesus as the Messiah? I mean, surely somebody in this region had probably ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey before, and you are absolutely correct. But the timing of his announcement is impeccable. It's perfect, because just days before, Jesus had done a public miracle where he called his friend Lazarus to come back from the dead. At that point, people have some questions. This is no ordinary man. There's something special about Jesus. The town is buzzing. Who is this man who calls dead people back to life? And at this moment, this is when he says, let me tell you who I am. I'm the promised one. I'm the king of kings. I'm the Lord of lords. I'm the one you have been waited on. I am the one who takes away the sin of the world. I am here to be your king. Jesus has the perfect timing. 
But the donkey doesn't just identify him as the Messiah. Jesus' choice and the prophecy for the Messiah to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, this is your next take-home truth, number five, is the donkey communicates the, uh, the Messiah's intent. A lot of times we make a lot out of the story and we talk about how humble Jesus was. How Jesus could have had the biggest horse and a large caravan of people, yet he chose nothing but a little cheap donkey and his disciples to bring him into the city. And that's absolutely true. But at this time, how you entered a city as a king, as a conquering king or as a returning king, it told about your intent. If you rode into a city on a giant white war horse, it told about your intent to conquer and to rule with an iron fist. It was a communication to the people, I am here to rule over you. But if you rode into, if a donkey rode into, or I'm sorry, if somebody rode into town on a donkey, it communicated, I come in peace. There are other places in Scripture where kings ride into cities on donkeys for this exact purpose. I'm not coming to conquer you. I'm not coming to go to war with you. I'm coming to identify myself as king, and I come in peace. Jesus Christ himself said as he came here, he said, I am the king of peace. Listen, or he uh, identified himself as the king of peace. He said, for the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. See, Jesus rides in and he says, listen, I'm coming in as king as this world, but I come in peace. I come to build relationship with you. I come to deliver salvation to you. I come that you may know me and be forgiven of your sin. And so with this story, I think there's one key question. Listen, I hope you learned something about donkeys today. The key question today is not, did Jesus ride in on a donkey? The key question today is not, what do you know about donkeys and the product protocols of becoming king? The question for you, as well as it was for the people that walked into or that watched Jesus come into Jerusalem, is how do you respond to Jesus as king? That's your next take home truth. The key question to this story is how will you respond to Jesus as king? Because if we're being honest, there's a couple of options, and we see these options play out in the scripture. You, you can receive him with gladness. You can be overjoyed that the king has come. You see some people in the story who, who are like that. They're so excited that he is here, and they're celebrating. But yet, there's another group of people who reject him as king. They're not excited. They're threatened, and they're upset. And so you see these two aspects of the story, and I want to ask us today as we go through this, which one do we fall in? Are we the kind of people who sees Jesus and his claim to be king and we're excited and receive him and say, yes, you are the king, I submit to you and your authority? Are we the kind of people who reject him and run from him and hate him? Listen to this, your, your next take home truth is, those who receive Jesus, point A, acknowledge him as king. Those who received Jesus acknowledge him as king. Luke tells us that the disciples and others celebrating laid their coats down in front of him. John tells us that they walked before him waving palm branches and in front of him. Both of those are true. You can take those two stories together and get the complete story. And so these two things traditionally point to an acceptance of royalty. Both of these things were meant for people to be saying, I, I submit to you, you are the king. See, palm branches at this time, waving a palm branch in front of somebody who was entering a city was a way that you honored and celebrated a king. This is their equivalent of rolling out the red carpet. And in our world, starting in 1821, <clears throat> 
1821 with President Monroe, one of the ways that we receive presidents, foreign dignitaries, and very important people is we get a red carpet we use nowhere else in our society. We get a red carpet and we roll it down and we say, your path has been made by this carpet because you are special. What they're doing here is the equivalent of rolling out the red carpet for Jesus. They're saying, we acknowledge that you are royalty, and we're celebrating that. And the same thing with the coats. The, the coats were laid down on the ground before him so that Jesus' donkey could walk across them. This is a way that you honored the king. Now, there's something you might miss here in the scripture if you don't dig into the Hebrew a little bit. It is when we hear that, we think of somebody taking off like their jacket and laying it down on the, on the ground. Maybe taking off their robe and laying it on the ground. The word used here for garment is actually a word that speaks to a specific garment, a prayer shawl that most Jews wore at this time. And what they would do is they would wear it and they would keep it with them. And when they prayed, they covered their head. And on this prayer garment were the words written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It was meant to be a daily reminder that the Messiah is coming. So as they begin to take these off and throw them at Jesus' feet, they're saying, I don't need a reminder the Messiah is coming anymore because he is here. We acknowledge who you are. We know you are the king that we've been waiting for. And I don't have to wait anymore. The second point is those who received Jesus rejoiced. See, the palm branch tradition of celebrating a king or royalty this way, the Palm Branch uh, tradition started with something called the Festival of Booths. See, the Festival of Booths is, is much like us in America. The Jews celebrated any kind of holiday with food. Much like our Thanksgiving, what do we do? We set a day aside every year where we prepare a big feast and we sit around and we think about all the things we have been thankful for. That's what we used to do. Now we eat food and we go out and get in fistfights over $2 washcloths at Walmart. But that's a different story. That's a different story. But the same concept of thanksgiving that we have, remember something with a feast, is how the Israelites did things. And so the Festival of Booze was a huge feast which they remembered God's provision for them when the Israelites went through the desert. You can find that story in Exodus if you'd like to go look at that sometime. And so what they would do is they would have this huge feast and this celebration and this party, and they would all live in these little shacks and structures they made for several days to remind themselves about the goodness of God as he provided for them in the past. But there was another aspect of the Festival of Booths is it reminded them that God was going to provide for them in the future. So it was a celebration of the coming Messiah. And one of the parts of those celebrations is they would take those palm branches and they would dance and they would wave them and they would practice for his arrival. So what you see is they are excited and they are rejoicing at Jesus' presence with them. Lastly, and most importantly, listen to this. Last, our next take-home truth, those who receive Jesus, point C, cry out for salvation. See, as Jesus enters the city, they wave their palm branches and they, they cry, Hosanna. Hosanna, the king is here. And, and Hosanna literally translated means, save us. See, they see Jesus coming into the world and they acknowledge not only is he the king, but they acknowledge we need to be saved. We need the Messiah. We need the king. You have the ability to do this and I do not. So they submit to themselves to the king. We celebrate your entry because you are bringing salvation to us. We can belong to you. You, you can be our king. We celebrate that. Save us. And I hope, I hope that's how we view Christ. 
I hope that we acknowledge him as king. I hope we rejoice that he is ours. I hope that we have and we continue to cry out for salvation. But there's another group of people in the city and their reaction to Jesus is much, much different. They're not rejoicing and they're not celebrating and they're certainly not crying out to Jesus, save us. So there are those who reject Jesus. Your next take-home truth is those who reject Jesus, point A, uh, dispute him as king. In Luke 19, there's another group standing around called the Pharisees. And this is what it says in verse 39. It says, And some of the Pharisees from among the multitudes said unto him, Master, rebuke your disciples. That word rebuke means correct them. These Pharisees are standing aside and they see Jesus entering and they see the palm leaves and they see the coats being laid down at his feet and they see people screaming, Hosanna, the king is here. And they look at Jesus and say, tell them they're wrong. Tell them you're not the Messiah. We know you're not. You know you're not. Tell them they're wrong. And I love Jesus' response to this. Jesus' response was, he looked at them and he said, Even if I quiet them, the very rocks will cry out. See, these people, these people rejected Christ in the midst of all the signs that he was who he said he was. And I think this is important as we we look at this. These people believed Jesus existed. They believed he was a good man. They had no choice but to believe that he could do miracles because they had seen it again and again and again but they rejected him as king. And I wonder how many people in the world who call themselves followers of Christ believe that he exists, they believe he was a good man. They may even believe he was the son of God and that he was risen again, but they reject him as king of their life. I have to ask myself, how many people do I know that call themselves followers of Christ, dispute him as king in their life? The next, the next uh, take-home truth is those who reject Jesus are threatened by him. If you look in Luke 19, 47, this is what they're doing. Those same people says, uh, Jesus is teaching. He says, and he taught daily in the temple. But, here's those same people, but the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him. They wanted rid of Jesus. They didn't accept him. They opposed him. They rejected him. And now they see him as a threat. This is not just somebody who is claiming to be somebody, something we don't believe in. He is now a threat to me because as long as he is here claiming to have power over my life, I am under threat of giving the power of my life away. See, when you fight with Jesus Christ, when you don't accept him as a king, it creates this internal conflict where we don't see him as a savior, but we see him as a threat to what I want. He may take the power from my life. He is dangerous and he is to be avoided. And once again, I believe there are people in this room that you're dealing with that. I'm avoiding Jesus Christ because I don't want to surrender. I don't want to acknowledge him as king. And what that will lead to is your next point, point C, is those who reject Jesus Christ fight against him. This is the same group of people who later arrest Jesus and take him before the the governor of the area. These are the same crowds who gather around Jesus and they cheer and they jolt, crucify him. They've rejected him. They feel threatened by him. And now they fight him. That is the natural order of men. And Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, stands before a man who is below him. And he allows himself to be judged by this man. And they take Jesus and they hang him on a cross where he gives his life for the sins of the world. It's not the way most king stories go. 
Now, now the biggest question with the story of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is how will you respond? Because there are some very big similarities in the scripture. See, the people that we're talking about in this story had waited for thousands of years for the Messiah. You and I have waited for thousands of years for the return of the Messiah. See, when Jesus left after he was resurrected, he promised, I will come back. But listen, when Jesus comes back, he will not be riding a donkey of peace. It will look much, much different. The Apostle of John, or the Apostle John, who, who walked with Jesus and not only was one of Jesus' disciples, but was one of, one of Jesus' best friends. After Jesus left, John was drawn up into heaven in a vision, and he sees the future, and he records for us prophecies about what will happen. And by the way, when you see the word prophecy, or when you think prophecy in the Bible, it's just simply God's promise to us, this is what will transpire. And he sees Jesus riding into our lives again as a king, but it looks much different. This is Revelation 19. Listen to what it says. He says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dripped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fiercest and wrath of the Almighty God. And he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Listen, when Jesus comes back, he is not coming on a donkey of peace. He is coming on a war horse of victory. When Jesus comes back, he will not be judged by men. He will judge all men, and he will have victory over all who reject. So when that day comes, we have to ask ourselves, which crowd will I be in when my Savior comes back? Will I see him coming back, and will I cry, Hosanna, the King is coming back. He's coming for me. I'm so excited. I've submitted my life to him. I'm rejoicing in his presence. Or will I be the people who have opposed him and fighted him, fight, <clears throat> who have opposed him and who fight him? See, many will try to fight, but they will lose. I love the way Revelation talks about the return of Christ in the battle. It gives this huge beginning to the battle of people trying to oppose Jesus. And it simply says, when the battle was over, it doesn't even take time to talk about who fought. It just ends. I want you to know right now that if you do not belong to Jesus Christ, if you've not accepted him as a savior, when he comes back, you will be in the group of people rejecting him and rejected by him. And he's not coming in at this time to make peace with you. He's coming to conquer you. The Bible says every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And at that moment, it will be too late. It will be too late for you to profess faith in Jesus Christ. But here's the good news. For thousands of years, Christians have prayed, Jesus, come back. And he hasn't yet. And the reason is for you and me. Because when he comes back, there will be no second chances. But as long as he waits, as long as he delays his coming, there is a second chance for every person in this room. I'm saved because of second chances and third chances and 38th chances. Jesus is waiting and he's waiting specifically because he wants you to come to him. It is not too late because right now Jesus is still the king who came in peace, who gave his life to wash away your sins so that you can rejoice in him. 
Maybe today is the day. Maybe today is the day that you need to know him as your savior. I want to finish with one story. I've told this story many times, but I love it. Lee Strobel was a man who rejected Christ. He was an investigative journalist. He was very distinguished in his field. And the worst thing he could ever think of happened to him. As an atheist, he came home one day and his wife told him, I've become a Christian. And he made a decision, I'm going to do battle with this Jesus Christ who has stolen my wife from me. And so he spent his life researching and writing a hit piece on Jesus Christ. He said, I'm going to prove there was no Jesus Christ. I'm going to prove that he didn't come back from the dead. I'm going to prove he wasn't God. And as he continued to fight with God and attack God, what he found, what he found in his research is that he was slowly becoming convinced that Jesus Christ was real, that he was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Lee Strobel tells a story, and, and I love this. He had become mentally convinced that Jesus Christ was real. He had become mentally convinced that Jesus Christ was the Savior of the world. But then he read this verse, and he said, I understood what I needed to do. He read a verse that it said, all of those who received him, those who believed in his name, became children of God. And he said, I saw a, a, a grand equation there. It's very simple. Believe plus receive equals become a child of God. There are many people in the world who have a mental belief of Jesus Christ, but they have not received his salvation. And they will not be with him and excited when he comes back. Liv, if you want to come up here. What I want to ask you today is, are you already submitted to the king? And if your answer to that is no, if you don't belong to Jesus Christ, today is the day. It is the best decision you will ever make. He is a righteous and a holy and a wonderful king. You will love to serve him. And maybe you've reached the point where you believe in your head, but it's time for you to receive him as your savior. Do that today. All it takes is crying out to him and saying, Jesus, I receive you. Forgive me of my sins. Let me be your child. That can happen today for you and your eternity can be changed. Let's stand and worship.